Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S dot C-O, and linkshus.com, where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Tom. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? I'm as good as can be expected on another smoggy Beijing day. You're based in Beijing, and who am I talking to? His name is Tom Orlick the chief Asia economist of Bloomberg. Tom, I've heard you and Kaiser Kuo in the Seneca podcast where you talk a little bit about the Chinese economy. And I thought that it would be great to get you on the show to sort of hear some of your insights. And of course, your book, Understanding China's Economic Indicators. So Tom, well, get to know you better. How do you get started in your career? Well, I started work in the British Treasury, the Ministry of Finance, back in 1999. I worked there for a number of years in a number of different roles, including as a representative in the International Monetary Fund in Washington, D.C., and in the European Commission in Brussels. In 2007, my girlfriend, now my wife, got an opportunity to work in Shanghai. So we both moved to Shanghai, studied Chinese in Shanghai Jiaotong University for a year, and then started working as an economist on the, on the Chinese economy, ultimately ending up with Bloomberg Intelligence in 2013. And at Bloomberg Intelligence, I had our Asia Economic Analysis team. From your experience in the British government to your stints in Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg, what are the interesting career lessons you have learned? That's a big question. And I, I wouldn't at all claim to have a, a monopoly on, on career wisdom uh, or even to be a particularly brilliant example for people to follow. But I would say never stop learning. I studied English literature as my first degree. I'm now a, an economist covering China. Since I left university, I've picked up quite a lot of economics and quite a lot of Chinese. And I think that goes to the idea that we should always carry on pushing ourselves and trying to expand our expand our boundaries. And that's how opportunities will come. What are your areas of coverage as the chief Asia economist of Bloomberg? So I, I manage a team which covers the whole Asian economy, focusing on China, Japan, Southeast Asia and India. My particular area of expertise uh, is the Chinese economy. I work very closely with a, with a colleague in Hong Kong, Fielding Chen, covering what's going on at the central bank, what people can expect from Chinese growth, what people can expect from the Chinese market. The reason why I got you here is because I'm sure that everybody is now watching the Chinese economy very closely due to the recent equities crash. I wanted to start with an introduction with a little bit about how the Chinese economy is structured. The first question I probably should ask you is what are the government agencies in China which are equivalent to like the Ministry of Trade, the Treasury, the Monetary Authority, which governs financial regulation and the Securities Exchange Commission in the US. So there's a number of key agencies to track if you're interested in understanding what's going on in China. The People's Bank of China is the central bank. They have lead responsibility for monetary policy and take a leading role in China's exchange rate policy. The Ministry of Finance are, are responsible for the budget. The China Securities Regulatory Commission take the lead in regulating the equity market. The China Banking Regulatory Commission take the lead in regulating banks. The National Development and Reform Commission, China's planning agency. They take a kind of overall view on the longer-term development of China. Uh, they set objectives. For example, they would take a lead in formulating the objectives in the five-year plan. And they still have a role in overseeing major investment projects. So if you look institution by institution, you can see some commonalities between China and other major economies. The difference 
is that in many cases, final authority in China does not rest with those ministries or the central bank. Final authority rests with the state council or even a higher level small groups around Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang who have the final word in setting policy decisions. Do they have a coordinating agency that actually helps to bridge these agencies together, I mean, in times of, for example, like an equities crash or some something that actually affects the financial markets drastically? Well, the state council is the, the, the typical coordinating body. The state council is kind of large, has lots of different interests on it. And so one of the characteristics of Chinese economic governance in the last few years is the creation of small groups. So the, the central leading group on financial and economic affairs with Xi Jinping at its center would be a, a smaller, more focused group, which would bring together together uh, and try and coordinate the key institutions on economic and financial market policy. For the Chinese policymakers, what are the central aims for them around the Chinese economy? So China has short-term and long-term objectives, uh, and the trick has always been to balance the two, not to sacrifice the long-term for the short-term or the short-term for the long-term. Short-term, the objective is always maintaining a suitable level of growth to ensure stable employment. Longer term, the objective has always been reform to prevent the structural stresses in China's economy causing a sharp slowdown over a three, four, five year time horizon. I'm so curious about the stock exchanges in China. How are the stock exchange in Greater China's structured? For example, in Shanghai and Shenzhen, and is the Hong Kong Stock Exchange a part of this Chinese economy structure? So China has a closed capital account, or at least a closely managed capital account. That means there are controls on flows of funds on and offshore. Now, what that means is it's difficult for investors in the mainland to take money to Hong Kong. And it's also difficult for investors in Hong Kong to bring money to the mainland. So the Shanghai and the Shenzhen markets are functionally separate from the Hong Kong market. Now, what's changed in the last few years is that as part of the reform and opening up process, China's government has been trying to break down some of those barriers. They think that allowing funds to flow more freely on and offshore would mean a more efficient allocation of capital and would help with their long-term reform objective. So one of the, the big things which has happened in the last two years is the opening of something called the Hong Kong-Shanghai Connect. That's a scheme which allows investors in Hong Kong to invest up to a limited quota amount in Shanghai and investors in Shanghai to invest up to a limited quota amount in Hong Kong. Of course, there is also the foreign exchange site as well. And I understand that the renminbi is only recently open to foreign exchange. I think the first place that they started is Singapore. Are there any other places where the renminbi is actually allowed to be exchanged? So the renminbi is in a period of transition. In the past, it was a very closely controlled currency. The government would like it to move towards being a more market set currency. In the past, it was viewed as undervalued. Uh, and the U.S. Congress and other foreign interests complained vociferously that China was benefiting from an undervalued currency. Now, the view in the markets is that it's close to fair value, and some even argue that it may be significantly overvalued. And so on multiple axes, the exchange rate is in a period of transition. I think what you're referring to is also a process of yuan internationalization. China would like the yuan to play a greater role as an international currency which means it's, they want it to be a currency that's used in to settle trade transactions. If we buy or sell 
goods from China. The Chinese government would like us to use yuan as the currency to, to, to pay for them. And they'd also like it to be used as an international investment currency. They'd like international investors to hold more yuan-denominated assets in the same way that international investors hold a lot of dollar or yen or euro-denominated assets. Uh, so as part of that process, and what we've seen in the last few years is the creation of lots of offshore yuan trading centers. So now in Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, London, Frankfurt, uh, and a few other places, there's a market in yuan products where investors can buy and sell yuan. So who are the key people in the Chinese economy? My question is, who runs the Central Bank of China, the Securities Exchange and the Treasury? And they are the people to watch. Zhou Xiaochuan is China's central bank governor, probably one of the most experienced financial bureaucrats in the world. Been at the helm of the central bank for more than a decade. Prior to that, had very senior roles in the Chinese banking sector and in the Chinese securities regulator. Seen as, in many ways as the architect of China's financial market reforms interest rate liberalization, yuan liberalization, the development of a fixed income market. These have all happened uh, under Zhou Xiaotran's, on Zhou Xiaotran's watch. Lo Jiwei is the Minister of Finance. He's also a very experienced bureaucrat viewed as a reformer and faces a significant challenge. In the last few years, China's economy has been kept going in part by under-the-table borrowing by local governments, which is been successful in that it's prevented a sharp drop in China's growth, but has also led to a sharp buildup of debt on local government balance sheets. One of the big tasks facing Lo Jiwei is to regularize China's financial system, making it easier for local governments to borrow through the front door, closing the back door so they can't do so much dodgy under the table borrowing. What are the forces and industries that are actually driving China's growth just before the recent equities crash? I understand that when Wen Jiabao was the prime minister, he was promising 8% year-on-year GDP growth. And that was facilitated China's boom in the last few years before the recent crash. Yes. China's economy is, is transitioning, and it's transitioning across multiple axes. Now, in the past, industry was a critical driver of growth accounted for more than, accounted was the largest share of China's economy. Now, the services sector is becoming more and more important. Indeed, the service sector is now larger than manufacturing as a share of GDP. So if you want to think about it in terms of what kind of industries that represents, well, in the past, China was a steel industry, a cement industry, a textile sweatshop economy. Now, is moving towards being an economy of accountants, hairdressers, IT engineers. And now, of course, that characterization overstates the case. Manufacturing is still hugely important in China, but that transition is underway from an industry, industrial economy to a service-driven economy. There's also a similar transition going on from the state sector to the private sector. In the past, the Chinese economy, the lion's share of productive capital, the lion's share of workers were were part of the state sector. Now, over the last 30 years, there's been a progressive transition away from state dominance of the economy towards a larger and larger role for the private sector. China's export boom, the export boom which followed their entry into the World Trade Organization in 2001, was almost entirely driven by private sector entrepreneurs based in Shenzhen and elsewhere on China's east coast critical question for the next year in China is how is the next stage of state sector reform going to go? Is China going to be able to succeed in reforming the big 
national champions that remain part of the state family, firms like China Mobile, PetroChina, or will they remain unreformed beer moths? Second big question on the state sector is, for the smaller state firms that play a big role at a provincial level, but are often part of dying industries or, or shrinking industries like steel and cement, will local governments be willing to let those firms go, go into bankruptcy or be merged in the service of the greater good of, of higher economic efficiency. The equities crash happened sometime around December 2015 and January 2016. What actually happened and what are the forces that actually caused it? So I'd actually date the beginning of the crash, Bernard, to closer to July 2015. Uh, you're right, there was another gap down in December and January, but the market really came, down, came off its peak in July of last year. So a lot of people look at the equity market and they assume that it's pointing to something rotten in the Chinese economy as a whole. Uh, I actually think that's a mistake. I think the story in the equity market last year is really a story about leverage. Beginning of 2015, the securities regulator allowed leverage to get into, allowed too much leverage into the equity market. People were allowed to buy equities using borrowed funds too much. And that accelerated the market on the way up. But it also built up a lot of risk. Because when people are holding positions which are financed by borrowing, those positions are very fragile. And we saw how fragile they were in the second half of 2015 when the market started to fall. When the market started to fall, people who bought using borrowed funds were forced to sell. And that triggered an accelerated downward move in the market, which has taken us to where we are today with the Shanghai Composite once again back below the 3000 level. But I have this question. China's economy is actually growing. Am I right to say that? Yes, you're right, yeah. This equities crash is just more of a single-off event based on over-leverage, but doesn't affect the economy as a whole in general. It has an effect. It has an effect on confidence. It has a direct effect on output in the financial sector. Output in the financial sector boomed last year because equity brokers were making a lot of money. This year, it won't be nearly so vibrant. There's an effect on household wealth. Some households have money invested in equities. They feel more confident when the equity market is going up. They feel less confident when the equity market is going down. But the equity market in China is just not that important. The equity market in Hong Kong or, or in America or in the UK is really a very central part of the financial system. It's a major store of wealth for households. It's a major source of value for, it's a major source of capital for businesses selling equities to raise funds for investment. In China, that's just not the case. The equity market is very exciting, generates a lot of headlines, generates a lot of excitement, but it's just not that important in the financial system. And so its impact on the real economy isn't that great. Is it true that the most investors in the China stock exchanges are actually local Chinese consumers and there are not many institutional funds actually involved in the Chinese equities? So yes, I mean, it's a retail market. There's a very large number of small investors who tend to trade on momentum, which means they buy when the market's going up and they sell when the market is going down. Now, what that tends to mean is it's a very speculative market. It moves away from the fundamentals of profit much too easily, as we've seen in the last year, can be extremely volatile with extreme movements within a single day. How are the traditional industries such as banking and real estate affected by these equities crash? Are they very dependent on how the equities movement are or they're due to other economic forces? Well, there's certainly an impact. Banks lent money on margin. Banks provided margin finance to investors. They are ex potentially exposed to risk when the market falls very quickly. If their borrowers can't repay the fund, that's probably a very small percentage of banks' total loan book. 
but but certainly it's a risk. The real estate sector has an interesting relationship with the equity market because there are limited investment options in China. You can keep your money in the bank, you can use it to buy equities, or you can use it to buy real estate. And so when the equity market was booming, well, that was actually a negative for real estate because people didn't want to put funds in houses when they thought they could make much higher returns by taking a bet on the Shanghai Composite Index. Now the equity market has collapsed. We're actually seeing more funds going into property because people see it as a more attractive investment option. What are the steps actually taken by the Chinese government to resolve the equities crash? I know they closed the market after the market sometime in December started to go down. What other steps have they taken since then to resolve this short crisis? So the Chinese government took aggressive moves in the second half of 2015 and the beginning of 2016 to try and arrest the slide in the market. They attempted to organize a, a rescue group of firms to buy into the market. They mobilized a national team of state-owned investors to prevent the market falling below certain levels. There was a, an attempt at a kind of innovative regulatory, an innovative new regulation called a, a circuit breaker where the market would pause. There'd be a pause in trading if the market fell a certain amount, which was intended to allow the market to catch its breath. I think broadly speaking, those attempts to, to calm the market, they weren't very successful. The market continued falling and they didn't do the reputation of China's securities regulator much good. Of course, no one looks good when the market is falling. If we went back to the United States in 2007, 2008, and we looked at how the press was reporting on the behavior of Timothy Gaetner and Ben Bernanke and Hank Paulson, we'd find that there was also a very negative view of their competence. It's difficult to look good when you're reacting in real time to slumping markets. But I think it's fair to say that one of the negative consequences of the market drop in China in 2015 and the regulator's response was that there was a blow to the regulator's reputation for competence. How did they approach this from their perspective? Or maybe my question is, what's the thinking behind those steps they have taken, for example, adopting the circuit breaker approach? Well, I think when you're facing a real-time market slump, you cast around for whatever solutions you can think of. And actually, it's quite striking that many of the solutions which China adopted are actually solutions which have been considered or employed at different points in time in the United States. If you read biographies of Alan Greenspan, for example, the Federal Reserve back in the 1980s considered organizing a rescue committee of buy-side firms to intervene in the U.S. stock market in the same way that China did. So I think they tried to draw on international experience. They tried to innovate. But the reality, though, was that because there was so much leverage in the market, because the market was so far out of whack with fundamentals, even very aggressive attempts to prevent its slide ultimately proved unsuccessful. Do you think that there will be more regulation or additional steps of reform in the uh, Securities Exchange Commission or the stock exchanges itself? Well, we've got a new chief regulator for the securities sector. So that will obviously provide an opportunity to uh, take a fresh look. I think the hope is that China can shift away from what's regarded as heavy-handed micro-interventions in the market and towards a more principles-based, hands-off approach. So how would that look? 
Well, it's very easy to say how you should do things in hindsight, but a more sensible approach to 2015 would have been to say, okay, we're going to cap the amount of leverage which individual investors can use to buy stocks, and we're going to cap the amount of leverage in the market as a whole. What that would have done is prevented the emergence of the bubble in equity market and also meant that the securities regulator didn't face all the difficulties they did in the second half of the year when that bubble started to started to implode. I have one question before we go to your book is recently the Chinese have started the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. How does this new entity would factor into the Chinese economy? Well, China has a huge amount of expertise in infrastructure building and it has a growing interest in facilitating trade in the region and trade can be trade links can be improved but infrastructure is better China also has an interest in playing a larger role in global financial governance and the Asia infrastructure investment bank helps it achieve objectives in all three of those areas expanding trade leveraging its infrastructure expertise and playing a bigger role in global financial governance and we come to your book understanding china's economic indicators translating the data into investment opportunities my first question is what is the motivation behind writing this book well that's a good question the the main motivation was i just wanted to become fantastically wealthy and i'm gonna have to tell you bernard that i failed and uh (laughs) writing understanding economic indicate understanding China's economic indicators has not made me fantastically wealthy. But if all of the listeners could go and buy a copy, that would that would help a tiny little bit. So more seriously, China is the set of the world's second largest economy. It's also it's also a mysterious economy. Most of the data is only published in Chinese and in English only with a lag. There are significant uncertainty about whether the data can be relied on or not. No one understands the methodology behind it. But a lot of that uncertainty, I thought was the product of misunderstanding. Or not misunderstanding, but basically an inability to read the Chinese source materials. And so I thought that my book would fill a gap. It would fill a gap in people's understanding of how data on the world's second largest economy is produced, what it means, whether it can be trusted, and how it impacts the market. And who are the intended audience behind the book? There's a bunch of different audiences we wanted to hit. We thought all Chinese people would want to copy, so we printed 1.3 billion. Um, <laughs> Turned out to be slightly over-optimistic, so we've still got one or two copies left available on Amazon. Certainly investors, so China's economic data has a significant impact on the market. When China's inflation goes up or down, when industrial output accelerates or decelerates, when house prices pop or sink, these all have impact on the equity market, the bond market, the the currency market. So I thought investors would would have a, a clear interest in having a better understanding of how the indicators work. Academics, covering the academics writing about China, often need to understand uh, what the data means, but they don't have the time to do detailed research on it themselves. Similarly, journalists writing about China. So we thought there'd be multiple audiences. I've actually read a couple of chapters of the book, and I thought it was a good book, and I would highly recommend it because I, I what I really liked about it is that you fleshed out some of the details in some numbers as well. But just before I ask the next question, th- is there a copy in Chinese too? Yes, there is. Yes. Chinese, Korean, English, it's available in multiple languages. So coming back to the book, how reliable are actually China's economic statistics? Because I know in the opening of the book, you talk about the year 2008-2009, after the financial meltdown in the United States. What is the reliability of the China's economic statistics? Clearly, there's a huge amount of skepticism in the market about China's economic data. 
whether or not that skepticism is well-founded, it's already having an important impact and, in fact, a negative impact for China. Let me give you an example of, of how that's played out. So back in August 2015, the PBOC, People's Bank of China, conducted what they thought was a fairly minor technical operation to bring their daily exchange rate fixing into line with the market price for the yuan. It involved a, a 1.9% depreciation of the yuan against the dollar. Now, the trouble was that because there's so much doubt about China's economic data, because the market has this underlying view that China's growth is significantly weaker than where the official data puts it, the market didn't interpret the PBOC's move as a technical adjustment. The market interpreted the PBOC's move as the beginning of a competitive devaluation. And the result was extreme selling pressure on the yuan, which forced the People's Bank of China into significant expenditure of foreign exchange reserves to defend the exchange rate. So what that anecdote illustrates is that whether or not China's data is reliable or not, the fact that many people in the market believe it isn't reliable is already having a significant cost for China. Now, as to whether the data is reliable or not, we actually, I actually have a more sanguine view on this than I think many people. Let me give you an illustration of why. So China publishes its GDP data on a quarterly basis. And often you'll find people saying, oh, look, China says its GDP has, has increased 6.9%, but electricity output has shrunk. How can those two things be true? Or China's GDP is up 6.9%, but industrial output is only up 5.5%. How can those thing, two things be true at the same time? The trouble with all of that, the trouble with approaches along those lines is that what you're doing is you're taking a specific indicator which tells you about something specific and comparing it to a general indicator which tells you about the whole economy. So, for example, when you look at electricity, you're looking at something which is much more reflective of heavy industry not reflective of what's going on in the service sector and so doesn't tell you about what's happening in the whole economy. And so, of course, there's a mismatch between the electricity number and the GDP number. So what we've done is we've looked at the family of China's indicators. We've looked at electricity production, industrial output, retail sales, fixed, fixed asset investment, exports, rail freight. We've run a regression which shows their relationship, the relationship between those monthly indicators and the quarterly GDP. And from that regression, we've been able to create a, a weighted average of those monthly indicators and basically a monthly GDP measure. And what's interesting about that, Bernard, is that our monthly GDP measure exactly tracks the quarterly GDP numbers. So what does that tell you? It tells you that China's data is internally consistent. Oh. Of course, if you, look at in, if you look at individual numbers like electricity or rail freight or coal production, you'll see an inconsistency between that and the GDP number because what you're doing is you're comparing a specific number to a general number. But when you look at the family of specific indicators and you weight them appropriately, then what you see is that over time, that family of indicators moves almost exactly in line with China's GDP data. And what that tells you, and doesn't, doesn't definitively tell you that China's data is real, but it tells you at least it meets the minimum test of internal consistency. That's what I like about the book. You have organized the economic indicators into, I think, eight chapters. And I think in the each statistic, you actually have a framework into understanding them. I thought maybe I should tease your mind a bit to explain the framework behind each statistic because you also talk about market sensitivity, you also talk about where's the source of that data, how do you know whether the data is actually reliable? So the way the book is structured tries to take you through China's entire data system. So it looks at the different components of demand, 
indicators which tell you about investment, indicators which tell you about consumption, indicators which tell you about export. It looks at the labor market numbers, the numbers on the financial sector, the various different policy indicators. So it's meant to tends to give you a kind of comprehensive overview of China's data system. How do we know numbers are reliable or not reliable? Well, one thing we can do is basically do cross-checks, right? There are multiple indicators which talk about the same thing. There are multiple indicators which talk about home sales, for example. There are multiple indicators which talk about the condition of the manufacturing sector. So one check of reliability is basically to do cross-referencing, right? I've got two indicators which tell me about the manufacturing sector. Are they moving together? If they're not moving together, why might they be moving separately? Is it to do with the sample set? Is it to do with something else? Or could it be evidence that one of the indicators isn't very reliable? Are there any cases where the indicators are reliable or is it just a manifestation of a different kind of economy emerging in China as compared to when we look at economic indicators in the West, for example, the UK, the US, who have evolved very differently with their economies? And there's certainly a lot of frustrations with looking at China's data. I'll give you an example, fixed asset investment data, which is the monthly measure of capital investment. Very important. Capital investment is hugely important for understanding what's going on in China's economy. The fixed asset investment data is only published on a year-to-date basis. So you, you don't get individual month data. In November, you get data for the first 11 months of the year together. In December, you get data for the first 12 months of the year together. You don't get the individual month. It's a nominal series, which means it's affected by movements in prices. And it's a series which includes not just new investment, like if I, I build a new machine or I build a new factory or I build a new house, but also transfers. So if I sell you my machine or I sell you my house or I sell you my factory, I haven't actually created anything new. I've just transferred something from me to you, but that's still counted in the fixed asset investment data. And all of that means that the fixed asset investment data is very divergent from the capital formation series in GDP and doesn't actually tell us very much um, about what's going on in capital formation in the economy. And in the economy, which is so dominated by investment like China, that actually leaves a big gap in our understanding. My penultimate question to you is, when you look at all these economic indicators, are you still able to piece a good view of the Chinese economy at a snapshot? Or do you have to constantly look at the data, given that the Chinese economy is progressing so rapidly by its growth? I mean, one of the exciting things, and I, I use excitement in in a, in a relative sense here, it's, it's not excitement like Britney Spears producing a new album. Mm. It's excitement in the world of economic data. But one of the exciting things about China's economy right now is that there's a whole wealth of new indicators which are coming out, which do enrich our understanding of what's going on. I'll give you an example. There's a company which is buying satellite images of China's industrial sites. So there's lots of satellites operating, uh, orbiting the Earth. They're all taking pictures of the Earth all the time. Quite cheap to buy those images. And this is a company that's buying a continuous stream of images of China's industrial sites, and it's using those to calculate the amount of activity going on, basically measuring the number of trucks going in and out of those industrial sites and providing a new space age way of tracking what's going on in China. That's a kind of extreme example, but there's all kinds of new data series coming out which tell us more about what's happening on China's internet, how China's consumers are behaving, how China's households are allocating investment. And all of these things are enriching our understanding of what's going on. And just before that, are you going to write a second edition of your book, given that it's changing so quickly? Bernard, I'm going to wait and see how many of your readers rush out and buy the first edition. And uh, depending on the surge in demand, I'll, uh, I'll decide on whether to start writing a second edition immediately or um, wait a while longer. 
No worries. I'll definitely help to promote the book. And most importantly, Tom, thank you for actually educating me a lot about the Chinese economy and some of the interesting economic indicators. But my final question, how do my audience find you? So the best way of following me is to go and buy a Bloomberg terminal. The second best way of following me, and for people who do have a Bloomberg terminal, the command to find all of our research on the Bloomberg terminal is bi space econ go. B-I, Econ, go. For people who don't have a Bloomberg terminal, then I'm on Twitter at, at Tom Orlick, T-O-M-O-R-L-I-K. And also to buy your book, Understanding China's Economic Indicators, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So you can find me at blongcw or at bernardlong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E, Asia. The podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Acast. And of course, tweet to us. And of course, give us valuable feedback and we always hope that you can also help us to upvote us in Product Hunt too. So once again, Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Bernard. It's a pleasure.